Hi everyone, this is Read Watch Play. I'm Cleo. I'm James. I'm Corinne. And I'm Justin. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about Mad Max Fury Road, directed by George Miller. Um, so this Mad Max is pretty different, I'd say, from the original movies. I mean, given I have, it's been a very long time since I've seen the Mel Gibson ones. It can be summarized fairly easily. Uh, Imper- Imperator Furiosa. Uh, played by oh Jesus, White, Charlie Theron. Charlie Theron, uh, yes, uh, is basically trying to save a bunch of these like young women who are the wives of uh, Immortan Joe, who is basically like emperor of this uh, post-apocalyptic oasis where everyone is not allowed to drink water. I don't know, uh, and. Really, Furiosa is the main character, and Mad Max, played by um, Tom Hardy, is more of a support in a way. Um, I mean, he's very is he's he's featured very centrally, but it's really Furiosa's story of trying to save these girls from basically being property of this horrible man and their journey through this wasteland. Uh, it's in, it's pretty much, I'd say it's like 95% of this takes place on moving vehicles. Yeah. Which is fucking sick. Oh, it's so good. This is also, is the, the Mad Max franchise also explicitly takes place in Australia, right? Yes. Well, okay. yeah, it, yes. Uh, Max is a cop in Australia in the first one, which is like, just as things are sort of starting to just kind of go to shit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's my understanding is that as, as the series goes on, you kind of lose track of, of where everything is relative to, um, the old world. Uh, but yes, it, but it's just, it's never implied that he leaves Australia. Right. And therefore it, no. And I, I like, honestly, I think like when they talk about the salts in this, I, my understanding had, at least for this movie has always been that that is, uh, like the oceans, like the, the land where the salt left from the oceans evaporating. That makes sense. It makes it like untenable. Yeah. Um, whereas you have better land in the places that used to be land. land. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> there we go. Um, so that's been, that is my understanding, but at a certain point, um, it is arguable that it's hard to keep track of, uh, where, where you would be on the globe, right? Like it would not be impossible for them to have made their way to say New Zealand potentially, or sure, uh, into Tasmania, which is part of Australia, but, um, in, or say hypothetically like up into areas that used to be like other islands or given enough time to someplace like Africa or up into Asia. Yeah. Um, however, I, I don't think that it, there's enough evidence to suggest that that, has actually happened. It's just at a certain point, it's hard to say with confidence where they are. But yes, it is certainly set in and around Australia. This is a pretty fucking cool movie, yeah? yeah. I love this movie so much. So much. It's so good. So, <laughs> Mad Max Fury Road is probably in my top five favorite movies of all time. It's... Oh, I'll, I'll, I, have actually, I have a question for you guys. Um... So I'm assuming we all saw this originally in theaters, but have you guys seen the, I think it's called like the Black and Chrome edition, which is just Mad Max in black and white. It comes with a Blu-ray and stuff. Well, so they're, I don't, so I don't know if they called it the Black, Black and Chrome came out before we got any kind of official release. It was a fan edit, um, which I still have and have never seen. Somebody had taken the entire movie had removed all dialogue and kept as many sound effects as I understand as possible and the soundtrack. Um, and so the beginning is sort of cut off. So the I, the version I have on iTunes is called Black... I mean, one of the special features is called Black and Chrome, and it's the entire movie with dialogue and the soundtrack and sound effects is just in black and white. So they kept the name. So they kept the yeah. name. Yeah. It sounds like there were two separate projects called the same thing. But with yeah. that same core idea, though, of it's it's Mad, Wa- Mad, Mad Max in black and white. 
Um, yeah, the the fan edit came out a few months after the movie had originally released on Blu-ray, and it it lived on Vimeo for half a day mm-hmm. or so before the studio got it taken down. Um, and I managed to grab a copy of it, and I have it saved on my media server. But yeah, somebody tried to make like a true silent version of the movie that was also monochrome. We've tried watching it twice, and both times the lack of dialogue has really annoyed me. Yeah, I, I just haven't gotten the, the the desire to watch it myself. But yeah, it's I don't think it's something that Corinne would watch at this point. No. I'd, I'd be really interested in the black and white version with dialogue. But... I say, which it sounds like is more what we're talking about, right? Yeah, the, yeah. the actual one the studio released, which was on... Like, the second release of the movie, I think, Cleo? Or at least you bought it on iTunes and it came as a special feature? Yeah, and it's what George Miller said was, like, his preferred version of the film. Like, he calls it much more, like, cinematic. Or, not that he was dissing the original in color, because obviously that's also very cinematic, but um, there's something... It's interesting, like, seeing an action film in black and white, because that's not what you would typically think to edit in that way, or, like, you know, change the coloring of. But it works. It definitely works. It's very, I don't want to say it like adds to the epicness levels, because obviously the original is also incredibly epic, but it makes, it gives it a kind of weird, even more otherworldly feel. Which is bonkers to me, because the first thing I think of when I watch that movie, and partially because it is so strong in that opening scene, right? You've got, you've got Max kind of standing up on like on the rocks it's just god i love the colors in this thing like the sky is so blue and the like the land is so orange and like i even to the extent where like i break down so much of the movie into like okay so you've got like that first like blue and orange phase and then you've got like like the dark orange phase and then you've got like the dark blue scene and then you've got like like i i think of that movie so tied to its colors and i love them so much which makes me want to see the uh the black and chrome version but when i first heard uh what you were discussing and when when i heard that quote of like oh yeah this was like his like preferred version i was like no fucking way because i it that to me that's so much of like what sticks in my head it's just how gorgeous it looks with those colors i i'd be very interested to see it but uh i i have not yeah i mean that's something that i really like about it is how oversaturated that the movie is um and miller has said right he has said that the the you know the monochrome version of the film is his preferred idea of how the movie should be presented but he in maybe the same interview or one of the others had said that like there were really only ever two ways to do it and it, it the while the monochrome is his preferred one the studio would have never released it and that the only other way you do a movie like this is is if you go just full in with as much like color as possible and so it's it's all very it's like for being this this you know desert movie, the colors that are in it are so very stark and like vibrant. Yeah, it's I don't know, it's fucking gorgeous. I also want to say that this is the action film that I kind of hold all other action films to now. Like, and I think nothing for me at least compares because what happens, and I've talked about this before. I think with like our Elysium episode. It's really easy for me to get kind of bored of, like, combat choreography and stunts and just action sequences in movies when there are really just, like, rehashed versions of things we've already seen before. And especially since with action films, a lot of times the action is just nonstop. It's, like, one thing after another. Um, I think just a combination of the stunt and fight choreography and obviously all the vehicles and then the editing um and the score that and obviously oh, i'm just gonna keep adding to this list and the cinematography like all of that works together so well to make this a movie that like i at least never get bored of i've seen it a billion times at this point and i still find it like very exhilarating to watch and it's and I, we should also acknowledge that a lot of i mean most of the stunts I mean, pretty much everything was practical, except for, like, a few things. Like, it's the exception for it to be, like, a CGI thing put in. Everybody was actually on these vehicles doing crazy fucking shit that could have killed them, potentially. I want to talk about practical effects, but before we move away from editing, I want to talk about the editing of this movie, because it's really fucking cool. Uh, Margaret Sixel was the editor for Mad Max Fury Road. And uh, it is my understanding 
that uh, women do not typically edit action movies. And I believe Margaret Sixel is also George Miller's wife, correct? Uh, I don't yes. actually know for sure. We we may want to confirm this fact. Yes, is that a conf- confirmation from Cleo? That, yes, that is a confirmation from Cleo. Great. Uh, so yeah, so if I, I was really into this story when it first came out, but it's been like a few years since I read up on it. But for my from my memory, uh, George Miller took Fury Road, gave it to his wife, and said, "I don't want this to look." like uh, how other action movies look like do what you want with it and a, a large part of the 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 flow and like you know the the choreography's great but but one of the real standout things for for Mad Max Fury Road is the editing uh just the the sort of like the seamless flowing movement from like one scene to the next and you know, like the, the the shots are really cool. The the direction obviously is is great. The practical effects are great, but it all comes together so well because of the work that Margaret Sixel did, uh, putting it all together. And I just wanted to like highlight that because it's one of my favorite things about the movie. She did win the Oscar for it, and damn if she didn't deserve it. Yeah, yeah. I remember the speech being really good. I did never heard the speech. She was also handed just like a boatload, like hours upon hours of footage i mean can you imagine having to edit all that i think it was over 300 hours if i remember correctly again i read articles about this when it first came out so this was like two years ago and i'm trying to like pull from memory because i didn't have time to like brush up on it um but yeah i believe it was over 300 hours of footage that she had to go through but if anybody is interested like there there's stuff out there that you can read like about this whole thing and i i recommend like just looking into it a little bit 470 hours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There you go. And it was shot 100% in sequence. Which, honestly, I don't know how you could do this movie any different. Yeah. I don't know. That's highly unusual. It is highly... It's just... It's it's this movie that's that's wholly about mo- like forward motion. I mean, I guess it still doesn't require that you actually film it in sequence. Yeah, I mean, like, so is Lord of the Rings, right? But... Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it's, it's incredibly unusual for a movie to be filmed in sequence. Yeah. I, like, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. George Miller, man. Margaret Sixel. Just fucking... Just killing it. Yeah. That was a, that was a cool-ass movie. So what else, what else do we want to do pre-spoilers? Because... Flamethrower guitar! Sorry, I got loud. Sorry. <laughs> All right, so if we want to talk about effects a little bit, I guess... Sure. The... Yeah, I think the number that they gave is about 80% of the effects in this movie are practical. And a large portion of the CGI and, and VFX stuff is... Um, creating artificial backgrounds. Hmm. So, like, a lot of this was filmed in, like, open space, and so when they're moving through canyons or when it's rocky or anything like that, like, that stuff is VFX. Hmm. But that is just even more impressive to me because it just means that that much more of the of the really cool stuff was practical, like, even more so than the 80% number kind of leads you to believe. But the the my favorite anecdote from this that comes out of this movie is, is, uh, is the guitar. So... I mean, for everybody who's seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen it, there, there's there's just a, a, a guitar with a flamethrower in in the neck. It's just it's it's the greatest thing, and it's real. It is a real functioning electric guitar with a functioning flamethrower attached to it. Gibson made it. George Miller went to Gibson and was like, "Listen, I want this guitar to do this thing in my movie, and and this is what I want." And they brought him a fake guitar. That, that, you know, it was designed by Gibson and created in it and it had the flamethrower and they, they brought it to him and he was like, no, 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 this thing has to work. I want my guy up there on it playing guitar while it shoots flames and plays the music out of these giant speakers that are going to be behind him. Do it again. And so then they made a functioning version of it and that's what's in the movie. And that is, that's just my favorite thing. Also, like, George Miller has talked about, like, why that's included in the film. Like, cause it seems like at first glance, it does seem like a weird, like, okay, so why is there just like this, is it a, is it a guitar? Or, like, yeah, like I thought it was a bass originally, but like, why is there a guy in like with his flamethrower guitar? It seems completely impractical. And there's all these people on drums. Why is this happening? This is just like, I'm um, completely unnecessary. But if you think about like the history of warfare, you have all sorts of instruments going to battle. There's all sorts of, um, I mean, bagpipes, drums are traditional. Uh, and so if you think about 
projecting into the future and going into a post-apocalyptic world, what's the thing that makes sense going into the future, like, based on what we have now? So, of course, there is some crazy person with an electric guitar flamethrower. Uh, that's just their bagpipe equivalent. Yeah. No, I mean, it makes perfect sense to me, honestly. Yeah. I mean, as, as weird as it sounds, right? Like, I mean, because you lose some of the practicality of, say, like, a, a drum on a boat, right, to keep uh, to keep oarsmen, like in time with one another so right. you, you lose some of that right because you don't have that on on it, your war rigs yeah and it's the same but, thing for marching right like the idea of the drummer boy was that he was keeping the marching going at a consistent pace but again war yeah. rigs and and the war party and and right this convoy they're cars right but and it's one of the things that i like a lot is that it that sort of like comes back around especially with like the introduction of like the the people who are on like the swaying platforms or something you know, where you might have, like, swaying to a beat to, like, keep those in time, but things like that. But even, or even just a sense of, like, when you're starting and stopping or, like, keeping formations and stuff. Like, yeah, no, I, it, it's that, like, cool beauty of all of it that everything, it feels like everything in the movie on one hand is just fucking rad. On the other hand, very little feels like it's there just to be there. Yeah. Like, it, it seems like it's the raddest version of that of the thing to fulfill that purpose sure but yeah there's there's almost nothing that feels like it's just like oh yeah this is there just just because it's cool the f when i first saw this movie in theaters this is maybe tmi i don't know when i first saw this movie in theaters uh about like halfway through the movie i was utterly engrossed by the way about halfway through the movie i like kind of came back to myself slightly and was like why am I cold? And I was like, oh, I'm sweating because I have so much adrenaline in my body right now. I was like in a cold movie theater, like sweating, which is gross. But because this movie was like so intense and action packed and like, like just crazy. My my friend and I, and I, the one that I went to see it with, we went to a TGI Fridays afterwards. and. Classic. Yeah. And I had to I had to consciously prevent myself from like driving up like going up to 80 miles per hour on the highway. I was like I was like towing at 65 on like Route 73 in in Marlton, New Jersey and like really just trying to pull back because I was so amped up. I as as much as I think the movie does hold up to small screens. I could not help but think that this was a fundamentally different experience from the first time I saw it. Both because, I mean, you can never go home again, right? You can never see the movie for the first time again and just be like, oh, shit. Like, I don't know. Just I, I can't even pick a thing as that oh, shit moment. You know, it's not just like, oh, shit. You know, the oh, shit moment happened. It's like, oh, shit. The movie happened some more. But it – so it's not, it's not just that, but it's the fact that it – for something like this – this is, I don't know, this is a movie to be played loud. You know, it, you, want, you want this on, like, an enormous screen. You want this, like, just totally filling your, your field of view. You want that truck to be fucking enormous, right? It, I really hope that in the years to come, this takes on, I, don't, I always think of Apocalypse Now as being, like, the big movie for this. But the kind of thing where, like, I could take like a, a kid or like a niece or nephew or something to go to a theater and see Mad Max Fury Road because it's a thing that just gets played at theaters still, you know, because and you know, you'll you'll go and it's a bunch of other people with like there because there's like, oh, man, I didn't show this to you ever on a small screen because I knew that there was going to be like a screening of this at a theater eventually. And I want that to be like the way you see it the first time, you know, like that this this is remembered as one of those things that's just like. Like, yeah, you can watch this on your phone, but it, I don't know, that so much of, like, watching it on a small screen is triggering that sense memory of seeing it in a theater for that first time. I I really hope that this is something that, like, where that theater experience doesn't go away. So, uh, I, I would recommend this movie to literally every person alive. Yes. Just all of them. I mean, it, it, it takes a pretty staunchly anti-water hoarding, water hoarding warlord stance. So, I mean, if that's you and you're, I mean, if, I mean, if you're open-minded, you know, that's fine. Like, you're willing to, to see that, that portrayal of yourself. But yeah, otherwise, I can't think of a lot of people who would, who would not be down for this. 
So the United States government should not... Probably, yeah. probably not. <laughs> but yeah, no, this, this movie's sick. It, and I even know some people who like aren't head over heels for it, but I can't think of anyone who didn't have a good time seeing it. You know? So I feel like that's the big thing. Where it's like even, even if this doesn't end up being like your favorite movie ever, um, I, yeah, I don't know anyone who didn't at least like have a good time at the movies at this. You know? I mean, I took my mom to go see it in theaters, and she loved it. Like, the second time I went to see it, I was like, you have to see this. And she's not, like, a huge action film fan, generally. I mean, she'll like it if there's a good story. But this was, like, again, edited in such a way that it's really easy to re- to maintain, like, engagement in it throughout the entire film. I did show it to a friend who fell asleep. That's crazy. Was it Hannah? No, it was Rose. Oh. <laughs> um, who both doesn't particularly like action movies or violence in film in general. Uh, and it was also the second movie of the night and it was fairly late, but okay. that did happen. All right. Yeah, There's a fair. lot of qualifiers. There's a lot that. of qualifiers there. All right. Are we getting into spoilers? I guess I so. so. Cause I, we can speak broadly positively about this movie until the cows come home, but yep. I, I want to get deep into this. Um, so with that spoiler breaks coming up, no summaries, uh, but we are going to talk a little bit about our next topic. If you were here for our last episode, you already know that it's witches, uh, because it's going to be our September-October time frame, so our, our annual spooky months. And so we are going to be reading Howl's Moving Castle, we are going to be watching The Witch, and we are going to be playing Banjo-Kazooie, that witchy classic. And I've never beaten Banjo-Kazooie. You know, I don't know that I have either. I've, like, I've seen it beaten. I, though, I, this is the qualifiers here that I largely played the game, like, with other people. Okay. Like, so I think that there are even, like, stretches in the game that I just haven't played because it was, like, handing off controller. We can talk about that in that episode. Yeah. Um, no, screw it. We're, we're right in the middle of Mad Max Fury Road. Let's all talk about our experiences with Banjo-Kazooie. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's going to be fun. But that is, that's next. And, and now is now. And so now is time, time for the Fury Road. Margaret Sixel also edited Babe Pig in the City. You know, I think I knew that. Because <laughs> didn't George Miller direct that? George Miller directed that movie. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that I, that's why Margaret edited that movie. That's the other big one that I know. Like, that's... In fact, I think... Uh, the thing is, I think she's his editor. Like, she edits a, most of... Or all of his movies. Like, like my favorite anecdote about Margaret Sexual editing Happy Feet. Like, George Miller directed Happy Feet, FYI. Yeah, that makes sense. The director of Mad Max Fury Road and the other Mad Max movies also directed Babe, Pig in the City, and Happy Feet. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like that's pretty obvious. There's a lot of thematic similarities there. Honestly. I it, liked Babe Pig in the City. And there's I, that point. I sort of I, I. I'm not, none of this is disparaging. I'm just right. idly commenting on Babe Pig in the City. Because I feel like a lot of people might think that, like, the sequel to Babe uh, wouldn't really be able to hold up. And it's it's not the same, like, kind of movie. But I think Babe Pig in the City really holds its own as, like, a different kind of movie that features the same beloved characters. I mean, there's that part where Babe, like... I cried when seeing it in theaters. Kicks a guy to the ground and just, like... At a certain moment. Blows his head off with a shotgun. Like, I feel like that was... <laughs> Is that the moment where you cried, Cleo? <laughs> yeah, that was <laughs> it. This interspersed <laughs> moment right here. There's a moment where I cried and he blew his head off with a shotgun at this one particular moment. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Babe Pig in the City aside, Mad Max yeah. Fury Road. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's take a trip. Let's take a trip down the Fury Road. Let's go... This film was shot chronologically and, I mean, is, is displayed chronologically. So we'll discuss it <laughs> so chronologically. let's talk about it chronologically. Um, I really love that first sequence. Like, like the capture, attempted escape yeah, whole sequence? Yeah, and just, like, I don't know, the movie does this a lot, but where it'll show sequences in, like, I, I don't it, to, to jump back to our favorite topic of audiobooks, but, like, at that, like, just slightly sped up speed, like, at which you might listen to an audiobook. Where it's just like, yeah, no, like it's, it adds like that certain sense of urgency to the scenes where, I don't know, like it, to the scenes where you're just kind of like getting background and it's not that they're not cool, but they're less cool than some of the other shit. And I feel like not a lot of movies can get away with like, oh yeah, this chase sequence, this is really one of the weaker chase sequences. We're just going to speed it up. Yeah, let's speed it up just a little bit. Not so fast that it feels like you're watching it like fast forwarded. But, like, that it just sort of, like, 
clips along at that like it just it, it also makes it more interesting than it would have been if it weren't yeah you know? it's, it's a neat thing and they use that a lot in in this opening sequence and it's just like max running around trying to get away from so and this is before you know that while he is our like eyes onto the story that he is not the i i'm always hesitant to use the word protagonist because i don't remember if I'm using it correctly in this sense, if protagonist is by definition our eyes into the story, but that the it, from the the high level, like the hero of this story, maybe that's probably a better way to, to describe it. The hero of this story is Furiosa, hundred percent. Yeah, and so this is before we know that. So this is we've got like Max, he's standing up, he eats a lizard, and he just like gets into his car and drives, and like there's people chasing him, and you're just on board. Got it. Chasing. Go. And, like, he gets, like, caught and imprisoned and just, you get so much context, and even, like, the tattooing scene where, they, like, they, they, like, his blood information and shit on his back, like, you get all this information that you don't realize you're getting. Like, it's such a good way of, like, giving you that context for everything with, with and, like, just tricking you into learning about where this movie's set. I, I think it's so cool. This is another movie. This is a movie that I'll say bears repeat watching, which I've said about a few other films we've covered. But there are little details in, just like with the production design, that you don't catch the first time around because the movie is pretty fast. Like, and the camera is constantly moving, so there are little tiny like props and set decoration pieces that you don't catch like the first two times you watch it. But this most recent time, what I noticed, which made me realize, wow, like there are still, even though I've seen this film like a gajillion times, there are still things I didn't pick up on. Like the um, the women who are producing like the mother's milk, uh, they're all holding these really grody baby dolls to like help them lactate, to like induce the feelings of motherhood that will like allow them to lactate. Uh and it's just, like, another one of those disturbing little details that just shows, like, how much thought was put into world building for this film. More so than I think any of the original Mad Max films, given, again, it's been a long time. And it's such a creepy world when you think and think about it. Like, not even, like, obvi- it's obviously creepy, but then when you get into, like, the nitty-gritty, it's super, super, super fucking creepy. Like, if you look into the room where Immortan Joe's wives are kept, and, like, how much has gone into keeping them there, but also giving them the trappings of living a luxurious life. Like, they have a piano and a chalkboard, so it's implied that they get lessons, but it's like, what are they being taught? Let's, I, I mean, maybe let's talk about, like, the the whole, like, the world building, the aesthetic, the different pieces of, like, sort of the Citadel. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, one thing I want to say, first of all, is I love the, the design decision to make all of the war boys, like, covered in what, a, what looks like chalk, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, just have these, like, dust. Yeah, just have these, like, stark white figures. And I've also always been a, I've always been unsure uh, as to whether the implication is that all of the, uh, the the war pups, like whose sons are they? All they are they all a Morton Joes? Because that's possible. Like he could just be, you know, having sex with as many you know quote unquote breeders as he wants and popping out an army. But like, do we think? Like, I don't know. I've always kind of wondered. It feels to me like he probably rounds up mutant children from in and around, you know, the area of the Citadel, which I guess at this point everybody's a mutant, more or less. But, like, it seems too much for them to all be his kids. There's too many of them. Yeah, I guess my understanding had been that, like, the those people who he kind of keeps around him were were his children. And everyone else was just kind of, like... The, the community that he'd built up around him, but I'm not really sure. It's an interesting idea. Because the, the idea that I had uh, sort of... I mean, w- one way to, I guess, read it would be that, you know, his quote-unquote sons are the, the ones who come from his 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 wives or mm-hmm. his, you know, whatever, prime breeders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
everybody else is just like not not like worth his lineage i guess mm-hmm. um but yeah i mean it's also equally po- possible that he just rounds up the the best looking children from the area and and does that or that his war boys are expected to produce offspring as part of yeah yeah i'm really not sure um but i mean it, i think you know that all of those different options are all kind of equally terrible yeah uh <laughs> and look at this fucking movie full of plot holes you know <laughs> you know what i'm done weak script weak world i don't know what's going on here um but i really like i other other questions i've i've kind of always had how often does he turn the water on is this a daily thing is this a once a week is it whenever it's a they good make question a... i was thinking about this when we watched it again for this like the way he talks about the water right don't become addicted to the water you're gonna want have we hit some kind of point where like hum- like the humans of this post-apocalyptic world have evolved past needing water as much as we do now and is he therefore not giving it to them that frequently yeah it's kind of unclear um I, I also don't remember the the earlier Mad Max films well enough to remember if we explicitly get into this. I mean, I think uh, Road Warrior is more about oil, if I remember right. I think so. I uh, haven't seen any of the original trilogy, so... Oh, they're good. They're worth it. Yeah, Me cool. neither. Um, yeah, I do want to see them all. Yeah, they're worth going back. Um, yeah, sorry, now I'm just thinking about Road Warrior and Thunderdome. Um, yeah, I don't remember um, to what extent they that the earlier films actively get into water as as uh, the precious resource that that it is i do think it's new in this in this movie as as the thing that it is yeah is my understanding from other stuff that i've read which makes some sense um i mean certainly the first film as i remember it it the the seas have not dried up at that point um which actually kind of ties into another thing that's sort of interesting about about the movies in general particularly when you hit fury road is that the timeline starts to skew pretty heavily um, which is why this kind of discussion might ultimately not be super productive. Um, just for reasons like uh, Max in Fury Road does not seem to be much older than Max in Mad Max. Like in Mad Max, he has like a, a wife and child. Uh, and some of this is just Tom Hardy is a strapping young man. Um, mm. But like the timeline kind of breaks down, right? Furiosa seems to be about the same age as him. But she was born very much post-apocalypse. She doesn't seem to remember the days before. She was born of the many mothers. We've got... I know, we have that whole trajectory. And she mentions, like, it having been, like, 7,000 days plus the ones she doesn't remember since she saw them. So that's, like, 20 years. Which makes Max being Tom Hardy's age not make a lot of sense. So it at a certain point, it becomes a little bit hard to track... Um, that shift towards water becoming precious and how much time humans might've had to uh, reduce a need for it. Here's my question. Uh, Is Max in this movie supposed to be the same Max as in the other movies? Yes, because he remembers uh, Road Warrior and Thunderdome. Okay. Some of the, some of the flashback sequences are explicitly from those movies, right? Yeah. And his car is as well. Um, that car is like a major, that he loses the car. It's like a huge fucking deal, right? Like, yeah. The other thing though is I, the big thing that I don't remember it is where this is set. Cause if I remember right, it might be that this is set between two and three. I, again, I need to go back and check them. I don't remember what the flashbacks are explicitly to, but they're at least to road warrior. Um, and I, because I think that a key component is that at the beginning of three, he's lost his car. Um, like he, he does not have that that car anymore. That was such a big deal that he got in one, and that is important in two. Um, so I don't remember exactly if that if that's true. Um, but I believe that he is supposed to be the same the same Max. As someone who hasn't seen any of the originals. I was both willing to accept that uh, these flashbacks and these, you know, the iconography uh, was just stuff that I wasn't going to have context for. And also willing to accept that this is just another guy named Max who maybe, maybe, you know, shares a, a similar backstory, but isn't necessarily the same character given how much time 
seems to have passed. I think that both of those are totally valid, to be honest. Like, I... We, we touched a little bit on this in, in the last episode, but I think that in a lot of ways, it's totally fair to think of Max not as uh, one continuous character, but as this more sort of totemic person. Um, I think that's totally fair. Uh, and, you know, when I say that, like, it, it might not necessarily be super productive to try and figure out exactly the, the trajectory here, I do mean that in a way where it's just like, and, and that's totally fine. There just might not be answers there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I think that you're right. And actually, to, to spin off of that, something that I think is worth bringing up, um, I think this, I certainly can't see any reason why uh, you would need to have seen the other Mad Max movies before this one. Um, arguably, this is a conversation for our, like, to whom would you recommend this? But, I mean, there is the fact that this is Mad Max 4. And a lot of 4s sometimes you know necessitate seeing one two and three and this is not one of them yeah i absolutely yeah. had no trouble at any point understanding yeah. what was going on maybe i didn't you know I, I i'm sure that i missed out on the i guess nostalgia portion of it but that's yeah. really just so unimportant to what this movie is and what it's doing agreed yeah uh so 40 minutes in let's talk about the hero of the story yeah we talked a lot about yeah the stuff broadly yeah so yeah let's talk about the most important character in this entire movie Imperator Furiosa. Uh, so, oh God, I just, I love her so much. Can we talk very briefly about simultaneously my favorite and the least important thing about her and that that is my favorite thing and that's that she's got a robot claw for a hand and that we just never talk about that. At a certain point, it gets ripped off. You just don't even think about it the entire movie. But she's got just got this sick robot hand. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so fucking cool. Uh, I think it's interesting. Um, I, I run in different internet circles than you do. and I do uh, not run in internet circles at all. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, and, y- you know, it's never mentioned in the movie, but uh, Furiosa being, uh, you know, a disabled character um, was a huge fucking deal uh, for, like, disability um, representation oh, neat. in yeah. the internet circles I I the internet forums I'm a part of. Yeah. Because this is the kind of thing that people always talk about, like representation of, of, of minorities of just like, you know, other groups of, of disabled people of, of, you know, trans people. So much of this, of the stories that are told about these kinds of people are all stories about, about their otherness. And these people should, these people exist organically in society. That's how it fucking works, right? And that's what Mad Max does. Mad Max takes, uh, you know, gives you a disabled character whose disability is not a factor to, into the story. It's not about the disability. It's just, yeah, she, she doesn't have an arm anymore. And so she has this prosthetic and that just is. It's cool stuff. I want to talk about my favorite thing about Furiosa, and that's the fact that her look of choice is black grease smeared across her the, her forehead. I love it. It's a, it's a strong choice, and I support it 100%. I'm very attracted to Imperator Furiosa. I, I don't know if that was apparent. What? No. Anyway, so I think uh, one of the things that I love about how this film presents her story and like how everything like happens is that we get our our 10 minute intro to 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 max and his situation to sort of understand where he comes from but the story starts the moment that furiosa walks onto the screen yes and you know this is a story of her rescuing uh immortan joe's wives from from him and max sort of incidentally helping with that yeah i mean just it certainly for the first chunk of it not even incidentally helping but just incidentally being around caught up in it yeah. yeah like he just sort of gets effectively dragged along for the ride yeah i i would say the whole first act is just max is kind of there and furiosa is is doing her thing yeah which includes fighting max a whole bunch which was awesome yeah, yeah their, their first confrontation is one of the best things in the movie it's so good i remember reading uh i remember reading something where like Charlize theron was was like yeah people are asking me if it's hard to show that much anger and i'm just like no <laughs> like what what the fuck kind of a question is that 
Is it hard for women to be angry? No. No, it's not. I love her. Furiosa, Furiosa or Charlize Theron? Or both. 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 Both a lot. <laughs> Atomic both Blonde. Both in a oh, God, I'm so excited. So excited for Atomic Blonde. So excited. Okay, off topic. But yeah, so again, and this is funny coming from like, okay, I don't know how to drive. Like, I do not have a driver's license. Me neither. Um, I know. I know. I need to get on that. But this movie always makes me want to drive. Um, and I swear, like, when I eventually do get my learner's permit, it's going to be because of this movie. Like, I'm going to watch this again and then go take my driver's test and then fail it because I'm going to be, like, road rage. <laughs> but um, just, uh, I love the fir- the whole opening sequence with her where she starts, like, they're drive- they're-, they're going and then she, you know, swerves off the road. And it's just, like, doing her own thing and doesn't explain it to anyone. Like, there is so little dialogue coming from her during that scene. And I kind of love it because my instinct, like, were I in her place would be to, like, over-explain everything and, like, make up excuses and lies to, like, the people who are questioning it. But she's just, like, so in control of the situation that she doesn't even feel bothered to, like, say anything to these people who are like, oh, why are we going off-road? We're not going to the bullet farm? Like, we're not going to get, like, guzzling? And she's just like, we're taking a detour. And it's just so badass. And I love it so much. Oh, my God. Side note, uh, Justin and I just realized that I'm the only one of the four of us who can drive. So, so the uh, the inevitable there. read, watch, play, road, cross-country road trip in which we make episodes Kerouac-style. Uh it's going to suck for Corinne. Okay. Moving on from that idea right quick. Um, I know we said we were going to do things chronologically, but I, I just... Um, we've already... Okay, great. Uh, I I want to say I really like the sort of implicit station that uh, Furiosa has um, within the, the, the community of the Citadel in that, A, she's the only Imperator that we see. As far as I know. Or at least that we are aware, aware of. of. I, yeah. we, there we are, really... I believe, two other Imperators who show up in other other scenes. In fact, the guys with her might also be Imperators. That seems unlikely. She's very much like in charge of that. No, I know. There, I know for a fact there are two other people credited as Imperators, like literally in the credits. Yeah, but it's it's not like... But it's never really made like... Yeah, there's, there's a character there, but she's the one that we talk about. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I like A, that, you know, as a leader, she just so is implicitly trusted and respected that yeah. she just has to like glare at people and they're like, okay, yep, this is what we're doing. And B, when they return to the Citadel at the end... Yeah. All of the the workers that that run the the elevator that lift the cars up and down, you know, a Morton Joe is dead. Spoilers. Wait, we're in spoiler section. A Morton Joe is dead, and they're all like, "Okay, who are these strange people?" And then Furiosa comes out, and they're like, "Oh, okay." And then like all of the war pups are like turning on uh, Morton Joe's last son, and it's like to me, it's always kind of read as though. Furiosa has this position of being a kind of beloved figure within the society of the Citadel. Certainly seems like, I mean, at that point, it, the thing that I'm always curious about there is how much of that was from before and how much of that is new because she killed Immortan Joe. I think there's, there's definitely some like before yeah. aspect to it. She's, well, I guess my thing is, I think that the before I'm totally on board with respected. The thing that I'm curious about is loved, you know? Yeah. That's, which is not to say that it's not there. That's always just the part that I'm, I'm curious about. It kind of, to me, it comes down to what, like where the war pups are, you know, at least, at least I'm looking at it from their perspective. Hmm. Um, although there's also just the people of the Citadel. I feel like to them, somebody like Furiosa may have ended up being beloved as much as respected because she is the one who, you know, gets them the things that ultimately help society function yeah um but from the warpup standpoint it either she was respected and beloved because she was morton joe's greatest imperator Mm. um and they don't like i mean in the context of what's happening like we went out and this thing happened and joe went out and then we came back and joe was dead and we had to bring him back like it could very much they could very much just be seeing it as like a morton joe died on whatever else happened out there and like these are who are left 
right? And they're bringing him back and not so much like a yay, a Morton Joe is dead, ding dong, you know, or, uh, you know, the witch is dead, that whole thing. Or it could very much be that the war pups are not yet as conditioned as, you know, the war boys and therefore are actually rejoicing in the fact that Joe is dead. Like, it's definitely true that the people mm. are happy that a Morton Joe is dead. Yeah. Um, Certainly seems like the war pups are happy he's dead with the with that ominous turn that they do yeah. towards a Morton Joe's last son. The yeah. I, I don't know his name. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm on board. Yeah. And, I mean, to a certain degree, clearly... Furiosa is beloved at least by, I would say at least as evidenced by the fact that she is the one who the the escapees go to mm-hmm. to try and get them out. You know, when when Joe kind of bursts into like the safe that they were being kept in and there's that one other woman who's there and she's just like, no, it's like, you know, she didn't take them. They begged her to go. Yeah. Like it that she's the one that they went to for that. So there's clearly... But again, it's the kind of thing where it's like, it, is that because they know her because she is important in this society and therefore, like, they would have gotten to know that she was okay, right. you know? But so I, I'm always, but yeah, at the very least, there is, yeah, that seed of she is important, she is respected, she seems well-liked, at least by her friends, you know? It almost feels to me as though Furiosa was the only one who could have killed a Morton Joe and, like supplanted him yeah yeah definitely gets that vibe yes i'd agree for me 100 percent. yeah so one of my favorite things about this movie is that some of the most badass action heroes we have in it are this group of elderly women and they're so fucking cool and they're on these motorcycles and they're just i don't think i i there's no other film i can say has that like we'll have sometimes older men playing like oh like the veteran who still like kind of has it is maybe a little bit more feeble now but we never see elderly women in that role at all and i just that meant a lot to me especially and this is going to sound trite potentially but like in a society where aging is like considered a sin for women basically uh seeing them take on those roles was incredibly meaningful to me like on a very deep level and I want a film that's, like, just about them, basically. Um, yeah, I mean, like, it's a similar feeling. I mean, Wonder Woman just came out pretty recently. I don't know if everybody's seen it, but a lot of the Amazons are not, they're not old. Certainly not old women in the sense of the, the, the many mothers from Mad Max, but they are Hollywood old. And it was incredible to, to see them in, um, in action roles there is a definite dearth i want to say of yeah of uh of badass older women and not just older women but old women in in action roles and we need more of them because they kicked so much ass it was freaking awesome i think there were also interviews with the the actors uh themselves and you know, I think just asking, like, you know, how did you feel about, you know, playing this role and all this, like, all these stunts and stuff? And they were like, yeah, this was incredible. Like, you never see stuff like this. I, I like, I was on board immediately. It's so cool. Yeah. I think, James, you were... Yeah, I was I was going to call back to um, when when we were talking about that, that scene where Furiosa kind of turns off from her from her run to Gastown, we that's that's kind of the first time we see the whole sense of like you've the war rig has like its driver, but then it's got its crew as well, right? And that sense of like climbing around on the truck, and just like that first time we see like that that guy with like the triangle glasses, and he's great as like a supporting unnamed character who just like pops in the window. He's like, "Hey, what's up? Where are we going?" I great introduction to that but that that whole idea of you've also got the crew uh that was something that that i liked a lot in this it and i feel like it kind of comes into the whole the whole sense of like the the rig itself and i i think 
even then, like I sort of doubles down on that sense of Furiosa as important in that she is, she's not just like this loner action hero, right? Like she is in command of this big thing that is important that takes a crew to run it and kind of like the leader of, of this group. And what makes it then so important that she's got, that as the movie goes on, we sort of have this sort of, not quite a found family, but like this found crew for the war rig to staff it. And you've got people stepping up into like other roles and you've got, like Knox kind of finding a home for himself as sort of like a mechanic in that and you know like the ways that Max is helping out and the big thing that I just kept thinking of during this movie and they're all like climbing around on the truck while it's in motion and like doing like repairs on the engines as it's going the big thing that I could not stop thinking about was Castle in the Sky and just I, I I love that movie for a whole host of other reasons but some of my favorite parts in that are when you're just on like that ship with like the sky pirates and it's doing things like keeping watch and like repairing engines and going down and just like fixing the thing while it's flying and while you're in combat. And it did remind me a lot of just kind of the sense that Miller seems to have this similar fascination with the road that Miyazaki has with aeronautics and flight as kind of this method for freedom and power it it was such a cool thing but that idea of i know this truck that requires a crew and like it taking a village in a lot of ways to like make this whole thing work seemed so thematically in line even with say the many mothers who have the exact opposite right where they're all on motorbikes it's it's this collection of people together but at the same time sort of every woman for herself in comparison, you've got this one big thing Then, I mean, how often are you in the truck in the car chase, right? Like the truck is the thing that gets flipped over, or like comes through or gets in the way. But just that the truck is a big part of a car chase. I don't know, just all those little things and that thematically, it really did seem to pull everything together. And that gives you that sense of you've got, I don't know, I feel like it does such a good job of being awesome in its own right and doubling down on this sense of, yeah, you've got all these other characters, but Furiosa is the hero. Everyone else is supporting her. Max is supporting her. He comes on, but and there are times when he drives the rig, but she is like the captain of this thing. It it does such a good, clever job of creating that situation where there's there's no reading of this movie that I can imagine where Max is the hero, where Max comes in and saves the day or anything else like that. The closest thing that you have to that, I feel like, is the scene where he catches up to everyone as they're leaving and they're going to go and try and push across the salts. And he just comes up and he's like, hey, you can do whatever you want. But I've been thinking, maybe we want to go back the other way. We just go back, we take the Citadel, we we fuck them up. Your call. Just saying. And like, that's the closest thing I can think of to a scene where if you really wanted to, you could try and hinge that into a scene where it's like, oh no. And then like Max comes in and like, he's the reason why they go and do this. It's like, no, he's just like, I was just thinking up to you, but that, I don't know. I, I just still love that ecosystem in and on the war rig so much. And all those little things that it does to kind of reinforce the movie's themes. I just think that's so cool. And to go back to like, the drums and the like fire base like yeah it's also just the most rad way of doing that like it i don't know that's the thing that i can never get out of my head about this movie i think it's fair to say that even max's return uh or not return but even max catching up to give them another option really just further supports furiosa's heroic journey yeah because it's totally that moment where you know the worst thing has come to pass you didn't reach the green place or rather you did or <laughs> the green place is gone the worst thing yeah. that has come to pass the green the green place is gone and it's always that moment where we knew what the stakes were we failed and now the heroes have to find a new way to achieve their goals and you know that was furiosa's story and max is the one who says hey a green place still exists, but it's just back the way we came. Yeah. And we have to fight for it, but, like... Yeah. Like, that could be our green place. Except for then, at the end, he just, like, fucks off. Well, yeah, but... More like, that could be your green place, yeah. I guess, is the way to... 
oh god do you did anyone else get the experience when the movie first came out and people being like and people like arguing that there was a romance between max and furiosa no, but I think mainly because I think this harkens back to the I don't run in any internet circles. Like <laughs> the only people with whom I talked about this movie are people who I think, who I think highly enough of that I wanted to talk to them about this movie. And I don't think anyone who makes that list goes in is just like, oh man, couldn't wait for them to start making out. Yeah, the Ugh. chemistry there. So like, yeah, no. I, get... I said last night when we were watching that uh, Max and Furiosa are they would be drift compatible if we were putting them in the Pacific Rim universe. Um, but that is a very different thing from romantic chemistry. Have you ever watched Pacific Rim? I have not. You should watch Pacific Rim. I, uh, frankly, I would like to. Yeah, I just have a Pacific Rim it. topic. All right, we'll work it in. Ma- yeah. Max. Done. Yeah. Pacific Rim and uh, this book that I will remember the title of and tell you guys. And, and, and Any of the billion games that do that. Exactly. Yeah. But anyway... Yeah, yeah, no, I I was not familiar with that as as a as a real world contingent. Yeah, it's. Uh, mm, I mean, are good. you aware of the idea when somebody says that expression? That is a thing that has come up. In the oh no, no, that I imagine. no! I think we're we're talking. We're no, back I'm, to we're back to shipping Max and Furiosa. Oh, okay, yeah, sorry. Yeah, as a thing that people could do. Yeah, people could. Shouldn't have, but they could, and I, they I did. Mean, I mean, listen, both, people but... ship worse things. It's true. But yeah, I, I don't think that the text supports it. I, I don't. I would say you can ship whatever you want, but I don't think that that's a reading that I, I see sufficient evidence for. I will say that I do really like their kind of like friendship and battle buddy chemistry. Like I think they work really well. They, it's like it's yeah. I guess like friendship chemistry doesn't quite sound right because it's not like they're like bosom pals or anything really. But that just like, call it drift compatibility. Bond. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. That's what it is. It's like that war bond. Um, and I like seeing them on screen together. I like seeing them work together. And I like the moments that do feel intimate. Not necessarily, like, romantically intimate, but, like, it doesn't have to be romantic for it to be intimate, right? So I like the way their relationship develops, even just, like, in a platonic way. It I find that meaningful without there having to be any kind of romantic connotation there. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I'm someone who really enjoys platonic male-female relationships in media you don't see them very often and i think it i mean it largely comes down to like when harry met sally syndrome and that so many people have like instilled in them this idea that a platonic relationship between two people of sexes to whom the other is attracted i don't know like the best way to describe that but it for so many people it comes down to if person a is attracted to people of person b's sex or gender and vice versa it can only end with them being together or tragically not like that. That is, that's something that will happen eventually. And which is so frustrating to me. And it's, I, it's one of the things that I like so much about this movie and their relationship. That is that it is platonic and it seems purely platonic and you can still have those intimate moments in the way that you would have an, an intimate platonic moment, right? You'd be hanging out with a friend and talking about shit. You know, it doesn't mean that you're going to bone. What if we just like ended the podcast right there? No wrap up or anything. What if it just cut immediately to the outro? <laughs> I feel ridiculous saying because we've talked about this movie for, I mean, you know, start date one hour five minutes, um, but I don't know. I, I still feel like I'm going to come away from this episode feeling like there was so much we didn't get to, you know, like that this was only like so scratching the surface because we tried to talk about so many things and I feel like every like little bit of this movie you could just like yeah. dive down into and like we've like frankly we haven't even gone like super deep into a lot of like themes or readings but just like a lot of just like very basic level of like this is what happens and that's really cool and look at how well made this is yeah you know but i i think that there's i don't know i personally read very much into nox's story kind of this nox Nux. Yeah. Yeah, I always... No, yeah, it's fine. I yeah. just... No, you're right, though. You said it once, and I wasn't going to say anything, but you said it again, and I figured I'd yeah. set the record straight. Thank you. Um, so, Noctis. Uh, the, <laughs> um, so, so we've got so we've got Nux's story, and it's one where it's very much like a side story, and I don't think it's, you know, the strongest one in the film by, by any stretch, but I do think that it's, like, a really interesting one, right? Like, just watching this, like, slow... 
watching him lose his religion actually yeah but and even in like a i don't know it i don't want to invite problems but i think that a a young white male in a community that kind of deifies this creep of a guy and all that he wants is to be witnessed and remembered and make something of himself and just feels like he doesn't have an outlet for that and then gets pulled out of that community and starts to see the world as less insular than that particularly when all of this is encouraged by him going out to hunt down a woman who is you know dared to rebel against that structure it i don't i don't think the parallels are hard to draw here and i don't think it's perfect for that but i it's one of i don't know to me it strikes me as one of those like kind of wonderful sci-fi moments of it's got a whole totally self-contained story and that's all fine i i can't see that without reading that as like someone getting pulled away from like bullshit gamergate culture stuff and mm. like starting to come around to just like oh wow shit maybe i shouldn't have been doing that like this was like look at this insularity look at this community like maybe there is more to life than that maybe maybe that was shallow and that drive to just be witnessed and to have you know recognition from this maybe women are people yeah exactly <laughs> but this like recognition from this father figure that like they're like otherwise lacking that they've tried to find somewhere else and you ended up kind of accidentally part of a cult and it's usually how it happens. But I mean, yeah, like, I don't know. Like, I, at least to me, that I feel like there's a lot to read into in his story. And I'll be the first to say that's, there's no way that that's the only reading of that story. I don't, I would not go so far as to say that's how Miller intended it or how that's how everyone reads it or that's how anyone reads it. But that's how it reads to me. And that that whole story is just, it's, I feel like it's the least interesting side story in the movie. And yet it still feels really good. At least to me. I don't know. But I don't know. So I feel like that there's so many things like that and that I, don't know, I almost feel bad because I'm going to come away from this episode being like, oh, man, think of everything we didn't touch just because there's so much. I'll, I'll also say uh, I like the I like the agency and moments of like badassness that each of the each of the wives was given yes um like they weren't obviously like they were the the initial macguffin of of the movie sort of yeah um but they were not they weren't just props yeah um even you know it would it would have been it would have been better than a guy stealing another man's wives if if it had been a woman, you know, liberating uh, these other women, if the the women she was liberating were kind of just props in the movie, that would have been better than, like, the guy doing it. Mm. But at the fact that the, the wives were then given character and agency and moments to be badass and use uh, what they had against their former captors, all of that, like, like Splendid's moment of protecting furiosa with her own like mm. pregnant body and things like that like the movie is is better for not just treating them as as uh, a, a plot point well and that they even struggle with that themselves you know that they it you see them actively working to almost like i think remind themselves that they are not things you know mm -hmm. you have the sense that they were raised to believe that and that they like they pulled themselves out of that bullshit to the extent that they were able to be, you know, to instigate this escape, right? Like, it's not even, like, and again, to go back, it wasn't that Furiosa took them. It's that they begged her to go. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, you see them still kind of struggling with that. And that they are, it seems like they're still kind of trying to figure out how they fit in the world now that they are not, like you know, effectively owned by someone that they are coming around like, no, we can exert our will against that. And you, know, you see them like kind of finding those moments of badassery and kind of as they differentiate themselves from one another more and more over the course of the film, it, 
yeah, like I think that there's, I think there's a huge well of just stuff to get into and think about there. Yeah. I also want to say that like, I really appreciate that this film does not go into graphic detail about their abuse and like, it doesn't show it because there's often what feels like, like people needing to prove glorification. Yeah. Well, it's like also people needing to prove like, Oh yeah, these women were abused, but in order for you to believe that we're going to have to show it to you in graphic detail. Cause otherwise you're just going to think like, oh, well, maybe it wasn't as bad as they were saying it is. And it's like, this movie doesn't do that at all. It, like, assumes that you're going to be, as an, you know, someone watching this, smart and, like, not shitty. <laughs> and to believe a group of women when they're saying, like, this was horrible and we're, like, that we have every reason to leave the situation. And to not be like, well, we didn't see them, like, being you know pr- prior to their we don't see them prior to their escape and i really appreciate that yeah it takes it as a given that being effectively a slave to someone is a bad thing and it does not need to explain that to you it's just like yep that was the situation god i hope you're on board with that because if you're not that's not that's not my problem yeah <laughs> that's that's on you yeah just i was actually when we when we watched last night i was I was worried a little bit that I was going to watch this movie again. And especially after, weirdly enough, especially after watching Wonder Woman and seeing seeing a movie directed by a woman and whether that would change how how I felt or viewed Mad Max Fury Road, which, you know, came out to almost three years ago at this point and you know things have happened and whether you know done with the best intentions you know and and masterfully executed as it was was still directed by a man and whether there would be like that sudden realization of oh shit like this this thing that i didn't realize before now is apparent because i've seen because i have this different context because i've seen you know a movie an action movie about a woman directed by a woman Mm. and i was pleasantly surprised to find that uh no man max fury road still just holds up it's still great it still presents itself and presents the stories of these women in an extremely respectful way and that was that was really nice i don't think we're gonna have a better ending than that So with that, next up is going to be Horizon Zero Dawn, a very different take on the apocalypse from either of the things we've done thus far, uh, which I'm super excited about. Um, Both Horizon itself, but also just the difference. I think this is going to be a really fun topic. We're going to have a lot of very different takes. uh, And yeah, I think it's going to be a very good discussion. But that's, that's still a ways out yet. Next up, Horizon Zero Dawn. Then after all of this, we're going to have our, our spooky witches theme. And then, yeah, something else. Uh, for now, though, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Read, Watch, Play. If you want to help us out, the best thing you can do is to tell your friends about the show. You can also rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to find us on social media, you can follow us on Twitter at rwppodcast or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash rwppodcast. I want to live in the universe where Posh Spice was Tank Girl. All right, well, your enthusiasm there is fucked our relative levels as, as a heads up. <laughs>